Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. Tonight we're starting a new series that I'm very excited about. If you got this little handout here, you can see um, the schedule all the way through the end of November on the things we're going to cover together. You'll notice on there that we have two Q&A nights, one on September 27th and one on November 29th. So as we go through uh, the study, you're keeping notes on your, on your note sheet or your notebook, whatever you keep notes in, um, and you come across a question or something, you can always ask me in person as we leave or as you come in, um, but also keep it for that night too. And we can uh, let the whole crowd hear the question, and we'll try to answer it together. All right, so September 27th, November 29th. As you think about questions, you can text them to me, email, call, and I'll try to save those and keep them in a list so we are prepared for those Q&A nights. You'll notice we're divided into two uh, major sections, the person of Christ and the work of Christ. And I'll explain a little bit of that about that tonight. And also on November, nope, September 20th, we will have a brief sort of pause in the theology to do a little historical talk uh, about the doctrine of Christ. So uh, there's lots of stuff that developed over the first uh, two or three centuries of the church's history in terms of the doctrine of Christ. And so we're going to take that night, rather than trying to unpack the history as we go, we're going to take one night and sort of talk about the early history of the doctrine of Christ and uh, all the councils and all the stuff that led us to where we are today. So you might have heard the term used already tonight, and I've used it a couple times on Sunday mornings getting into this, um, the word Christology. And so what is Christology? Well, it is the part of theology that deals with the nature and the work of Jesus Christ. So theology as a whole is the big umbrella under which all the other ologies of theology are. So when we're talking about the doctrine of God, that's theology proper, the whole thing. And then underneath that are all these little subsets of theology. Um, Christology, study of Christ, pneumatology, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, a uh, fun one is hemartiology, which is the theology of sin, ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. So we're sort of taking one of those small branches of systematic theology, Christology, and we're going to explore that over this whole semester through November. Okay, The part of theology that deals with the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, you say, oh, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, um, I know about Jesus, why are we doing a whole series on who Jesus is and what Jesus has done? Well, we need to be able to defend the Christian faith and defend the truth of Jesus against falsehood. And some of the falsehoods that you will encounter sometimes right here in Dumas are maybe false teachings such as Mormonism. Uh, Mormonism teaches that Jesus Christ is the firstborn child of Elohim. Elohim was a man who became God, and with our Heavenly Mother, he procreates forever, and and Jesus Christ was the first of one of those children. That's Mormonism. Jehovah's Witnesses teach that Jesus is not equal with God, but is less than Jehovah, and that he was the first creation of Jehovah, uh, and that he is not God in human flesh, and that it's wrong to say so. Uh, You might have heard in the last maybe 20, 25 years of the so-called Gnostic Gospels, Uh, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, some of these late second century things that claimed to be Gospels like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but were completely different than the biblical Gospel. Probably the most notable recently was the Gospel of Mary Magdalene and the Gospel of Judas. Um, The Da Vinci Code was based on some of these ideas from the Gnostic Gospels that Jesus 
uh, had a wife. It was Mary Magdalene. He actually had children, and some of those children and great-grandchildren and so on and so forth exist to this day, and the Catholic Church has tried to cover it up. And so that generated a lot of interest in what we call these Gnostic Gospels that supposedly told more about Jesus than our biblical Gospels do. And so you had people like Dan Brown. I don't know if you know that name. That's the author of the Da Vinci Code. Uh, Bart Ehrman, who was a supposed New Testament scholar from Duke University, who said, yeah, in the early church, there were all kinds of views of Jesus. And sort of what they say is that the Catholic Church, trying to keep their way the only way, sort of snuffed out all the other views of who Jesus was. So all we're left with in Christianity is this one sort of narrow view that we call Christian Christology. But all those other views existed. Now we're going to talk about all that when we get to the historical aspect. But these are just parts of what you will have to defend the Christian faith against and why Christology is so important. So I just talked about a few contemporary issues that make Christology so important. Number one is misinformation about Jesus. So whether it's the Gnostic Gospels, um, the Jesus Seminar about 30 years ago, um, or just everyday people saying, well, Jesus is just one of many saviors or, or um, religious figures. Uh, number two, false teaching about Jesus. So Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, oneness teaching, things like that. And number three, misunderstandings about Jesus. Now, we get to those misunderstandings, and we're not talking about false teaching proper, and we're not talking about heresy, but just misunderstandings by maybe average, ordinary, everyday lay people, Christians, like you and like me, who maybe have thought something about Jesus for a long time, Maybe someone told you something about Jesus for a long time that just doesn't square with historical Christianity or the Bible, and you just don't know it, or I just don't know it. And sometimes when we study theology, we're forced to deal with presuppositions that we have about theology. We're forced to deal with things that we've always thought or always heard that are wrong. And when we come face-to-face with the Bible and historical Christian theology, maybe we say, I have to tweak what I think a little bit because it turns out I was wrong. For instance, um, when I started Bible college, you have to take a theology course, and in your theology course, you're going to talk about the doctrine of the Trinity. And I was a freshman pursuing ministry at a Bible college and realized that first semester of theology that I had a completely different view of the Trinity than what was biblical and historical. And I Technically, I was a heretic because I didn't understand the Trinity rightly. And studying theology and having someone teach me brought me face-to-face with those errors. I corrected them according to the Bible and and moved on. And so we have to come face-to-face with those errors sometimes. So misinformation about Jesus, false teaching about Jesus, or just ignorant sort of misunderstandings about Jesus. So let's ask the question, why is Christology important? Why does it matter? With those things in mind, why do we need it as Christians? Number one, to avoid idolatry. To avoid idolatry. Say, how, how am I an idolater if I'm a Christian? Well, if you have a false view of God, if you have a false view of Jesus, uh, what he has done, who he is, his nature we run the risk of committing idolatry because we find ourselves worshiping and serving a God or a Christ or a Jesus who is not the biblical Jesus. And we might do so ignorantly, not intentionally, not following Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness teaching, but maybe just sort of an ignorance in our thinking, and we wind up being idolaters and we don't know it. So coming face to face with this true biblical theology helps us avoid idolatry. It helps us to defend right teaching, to defend right teaching, and to refute false teaching. This is not uh, the most popular thing to do in modern Christianity, but... um, the Bible is clear, Paul is clear in 1 Timothy chapter 1, that if someone teaches a contrary gospel or a contrary Jesus, Paul says there in 1 Timothy 1, you're to rebuke them. He says within the church, you're to rebuke them openly. 
so we don't let false teaching just sort of permeate and grow like an infection within a Sunday school class or a small group or, or from a pastor or a teacher or a deacon or anyone. If, if false teaching, especially on the doctrine of Christ, creeps up, we have to be able to defend right teaching and to refute false teaching because eternity is in the balance for all of it. Ultimately, we want to know the true Jesus. I think we would all agree we want to know the true Jesus, right? We want to know who Jesus is according to the Bible. We want to worship him rightly. We want to understand who he is and what he has done, and that's why Christology is so important, to avoid idolatry, to refute false teaching, defend right teaching, and to know the true Jesus. It's sort of a a common thing in modern Christianity to avoid theology, um, to avoid what we might call those, those $10 words, the theological words, and, and sometimes those can be unhelpful when they're not explained. But let me, let me ask you a question, give you an example. If, um, you know, I claim to love my wife, Jessica, if we had met and I said, you know, I love you, I just don't want to spend much time with you, and I certainly don't want to know anything about you. Now, th- those are obviously contradictory claims, right? Well, how often do we do the same thing with Jesus? I love Jesus. I'm just not into theology. Or we say, who needs all that theology? We just need Jesus. And I understand the heart behind that. But you can't worship and love somebody you don't know. And so God calls us to dig into his word, to listen to his Holy Spirit as he leads us into all truth, And that is the ultimate goal of theology, not just to fill our heads with knowledge and arrogance, but to fill our hearts with a fire and a love for who God is, who Jesus is, and what he has done for us. C.S. Lewis uh, famously said that Jesus is either a liar or lunatic or Lord. Um, One of the commentaries I was reading added one more to it. Jesus is either liar, lunatic, legend, or Lord. And those are really the only four options you have. When someone comes face to face with Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth as presented in the biblical gospels, when someone comes face to face with him, they hear his claims, they hear who he claims to be. These are the only four options. He's either a liar who knew he was telling falsehoods and he knew he was leading people astray, in which case he's to be disregarded. Or he's a lunatic. He was saying falsehoods, but he didn't know they were falsehoods. He really did think he was the son of God. He thought he was God in human flesh, but he wasn't. So he was just crazy. Or he was a legend. He, he's not really who his followers said he was. Maybe Jesus said one thing, but his followers sort of made him into something else, a legend or a myth. So those are some options that people take. A lot of people want to say, well, he was a good teacher, he was a good moral teacher, he was a prophet, as Islam says. Uh, Any number of things that people will say about Jesus, sort of answering that question Jesus asked in Matthew 16, who who do people say that I am? There's lots of options, it sounds like, out there, but really there's just the four. He's either a deceiver, crazy, a myth, or he's Lord. He actually is who he says he is the Son of the living God, God in human flesh. And how we answer this question, and how anyone answers this question, defines where they will spend eternity. This is one of the only only aspects of theology that directly deals with the issue of salvation. You can get a lot of things wrong in theology, one of my professors said. You can have a lot of differences, you can have a lot of misunderstandings, You can have a lot of stuff that's out of place, but you cannot get Jesus wrong. And that's why Christology is so important. Eternity itself is in the balance. So what do we mean when we talk about the person and the work of Christ? The the title of the series and uh, sort of the the framework for all we're going to talk about. Well, as you can tell, maybe the person of Christ refers to who Jesus is in his nature, the, the theology behind the person of the man Jesus Christ. 
And the work of Christ then refers to what Jesus has done. So as you can tell, um, looking at your handout with the, uh, with the schedule on it, as we talk about the person of Christ over the next month or so, tonight we'll look at the pre-incarnate Christ. Uh, the next week we'll talk about the incarnation of Christ, the deity of Christ, that's the Godhood of Christ, the humanity of Christ, and then talk about on September 20th those historical developments that sort of shaped early Christian theology on who Jesus is. Then we come back in October, we'll begin the work of Christ. So the life of Christ, the atonement, the resurrection, the ascension, the offices, who Jesus is as prophet, priest, and king, the second coming, the glory of Christ, and then we'll end with some questions and answers. So I've divided it that way. That's the framework for the whole series, who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So tonight we're going to begin with that big word, the pre-incarnate Christ. When I say pre-incarnate, it just means who Jesus was and what Jesus was before or pre-incarnation. Now, we'll talk about the incarnation next week, but just in case you don't know what the incarnation means this week, that is the idea of God becoming man. God taking on flesh. As I, when, I always, when I talk about this, I always talk about carne asada, or tacos, carne asada, or in Spanish, you talk about meat, it's a, or a carne, and so from Latin, carne means meat or flesh, and so for Jesus to become incarnate, he is becoming enfleshed, he's taking on meat and flesh and bones, that's what the word incarnation means, so always think about carne asada when you think about the incarnation, the pre-incarnate Christ is the pre-incarnation, the pre-enfleshing of who Jesus is. So this asks the question, maybe you never thought about these questions before, where was Jesus before he was born in Bethlehem? Where was Jesus before he was born in Bethlehem? Or here's a sort of a meta question, <laughs> what was Jesus before he was born in Bethlehem? What was Jesus before he was born in Bethlehem? And that leads us to this word, pre-existence. That before the man Jesus of Nazareth was born in Bethlehem, before the incarnation and conception of the Virgin Mary, Jesus, as the eternal Son of God, had already existed. He had pre-existence, pre-incarnation. So let's talk about what that means. What does it mean by the pre-existence of Jesus? Well, the person of Christ is truly God and truly man. I don't know why I made those blanks on the presentation. It's the only one I did that for. The person of Christ is truly God and truly man. Okay? Truly God and truly man. So when we talk about the man, Jesus Christ. Now Paul says there's only one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. Who, as he says in Philippians chapter 2, though he was in the form of God, took on the form of man. In the incarnation, God became man. But before he became man, he was already and eternally God. When we look at the man Jesus Christ, we see true God and true human, fully divine fully man. We'll, we'll talk about all that in those weeks on the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. All right, here comes the actual fill in the blanks. I just got confused that first one. The Son, the Son was eternally present with the Father and the Holy Spirit. So although Jesus, the man of Nazareth, took on flesh and was conceived in the Virgin Mary, born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, before that, he had already and eternally existed co-equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. The doctrine of the Trinity, as you see there on your paper, if you have a handout, teaches that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. One divine being, one divine essence, but eternally existing in three persons. 
And the Father was never the Son, and the Son was never the Father. The Son is never the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is never the Son. The Holy Spirit is never the Father, and the Father is never the Holy Spirit. Three distinct, but not separate, individual persons. We'll talk about that in the historical uh, talk in a few weeks. Three persons, one God. Three distinct persons, but undivided. Unique and united as one God, but not mixed and not confused. So when we talk about the person of Jesus, we're not talking about the Father. When we talk about the person of Jesus, we're not talking about the Holy Spirit. We're talking about the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, who became human. Now, that might be something that we all understand. Uh, How many times have you heard, and I do it sometimes, just not even thinking in the car, praying with Anna in the morning. How many times do we just sort of haphazardly address God, and he knows our heart, he knows our heart, but how many times do we just sort of haphazardly address him without thinking whom we're addressing? Am I talking to God the Father? Am I talking to God the Son? Am I talking to God the Holy Spirit? I'll tell you why it matters if you say, Dear Heavenly Father, addressing God the Father, I thank you for coming to earth. Wrong. The Father did not come to earth. I thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Nope, the Father did not die for our sins. The Son, the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ, died for our sins. So it matters greatly how we think about the Trinity, how we think about the person of Christ, because it matters to our prayers. The Son does not come into being at a moment in time. Although, yes, the man Jesus Christ was conceived at a moment and born at a moment in time 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem, although that did happen in history in the past, that was not the birth of the divine being of God. That was the birth of the God-man Jesus Christ, the eternal God becoming man. But it was not the birthday of God. Now, in the historical considerations, we'll talk about how we can talk about Mary, the mother of God, and things like this. We'll talk about that in the historical considerations. But the Son did not come into being in Bethlehem. The God-man Jesus Christ did, as the Son of God, eternal, took on human flesh and the person of Jesus of Nazareth. One of the early Christian heresies, and we'll talk about this in the historical time too, uh, but I wanted to address it tonight. One of the early Christian heresies is a false teaching called Arianism. Arianism, as you can tell, was taught by a bishop named Arius. And Arius said, and I quote, there was a little, a little song he made about it, there was a time when the Son, S-O-N, was not. And so his false teaching about Jesus, very similar to modern-day Jehovah's Witnesses, was that there was always God the Father, but Jesus Christ the Son was a creation of God the Father. He might have been the first and the best creation. He might have been the most glorious creation, but nevertheless, he was just a creation of the Father. Same thing Jehovah's Witnesses say. And so he said there was a time when the Son was not. And he made a little song about it so that Christians would be duped into hearing that and thinking it and thinking that's the proper way to view Jesus. It was a heresy that was refuted by the early church and refuted, especially in the Nicene Creed on the back of your handout there, we'll look at that in a minute, uh, which confers that Jesus is truly God, truly man, without beginning. So if we're going to understand anything tonight, let's start there. Jesus, fully God, the Son of God, God the Son, who before he was born in Bethlehem, eternally existed with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, without creation, without beginning, without coming into being at a point in time. That's what we mean by pre-existence. Also by pre-existence, we see how the Son existed and what he was doing before creation. The Son is the creator. The Son is the creator. It's interesting when you read you know, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. What does it say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We come to John chapter 1. What does John say? In the beginning 
was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And that whole universe, John says, was made by the Word, who is God and who was with God. Down in verse 14, John says that's the Word that became flesh. The one who was with God and who was God became flesh. Who's he talking about? The Son, God the Son, Jesus Christ, who is nothing less than the Creator God Himself. That's what Paul says in Colossians 1, verses 16 through 17. In him all things consist, and they hold together. He is the creator of all that is seen. Through him God created all things. That's what it says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. Through him God created everything. The Son, before creation, shared in his Father's love and glory. Um, Look quickly there at John chapter 17, if you have your Bibles. John chapter 17. This is what we call the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Before he goes to the cross, he, he stops and he's praying for his disciples. He's praying for future believers. And we get a lot of good theology here. John has already told us that this Jesus who became flesh was the Word who was with God and who was God. So immediately there we see some of the doctrine of the Trinity, don't we? That he shared in this oneness with God as God, but there was also a distinction between Father and Son because he was with God. And here in John 17 we see some of that language. Um, Look at John 17 verse uh, 5. John 17, verse 5, Jesus praying to his Father says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The glory I had with you. Now, if you know, um, I'm going to find where my notes went. If you know your, there it is. If you know your biblical prophecy from Isaiah, Isaiah says, um, Isaiah 41 or 42, Isaiah says that God shares his glory with nobody. I share my glory with no one, God says. And so it's interesting that here Jesus, the son, as he's praying, presumably in the garden of Gethsemane, this high priestly prayer, or at some point before his crucifixion, talking to his father, We see the distinction between father and son. He's talking to someone, not himself. But we also see this togetherness and that there's this glory that the son shared with the father before the worlds existed. God sharing his glory with someone, but he doesn't share his glory with anyone. So this person with whom he shared his glory must be equal in power and glory. Uh, Look down at verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. You loved me. Not only did we share this glory, but we shared this deep love between the Father and the Son. When? Before creation. Long before Bethlehem, And long before creation itself, into eternity past, which is unfathomable for us. Eternity past, saying that that phrase even, and using the word past in reference to eternity, doesn't make any sense. Eternity is the absence of time itself. Just from all time, and before time, and before space, Father, Son, and Spirit in love and glory. The Son is eternal in His nature. In the beginning was the Word. It doesn't say from the beginning, as in creation. And throughout the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, there are several references to the beginning, and it doesn't mean creation. It means from before creation, from eternity past, the Son, the Word, was with God and was God. In the beginning, before there was anything, There was Son and Father and Holy Spirit 
the Son being eternal in his nature. So that might make you ask the question, so what do we mean when we say the word Son? Why, why, why we have Father and Son? Because that seems like there's this delineation. We know just basic human biology, there's a father and a mother, and then there's children. If it's a male, that'll be a son that's born. Uh, brothers are not called sons. If you could clone yourself, you wouldn't call that your son. Uh, maybe you would. But a <laughs> son is this physical offspring. And so we have this thing in our head that because there's father and son, the son must have come into being at a point in time. The son must have started. He must have literally been born, not just in Bethlehem, but in his person as the son. He had to have a starting point, else there wouldn't be uh, father and son. Uh, look over at the book of Colossians. Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter 1, verse 15. Let's see one of these verses that sort of raises some eyebrows sometimes. And one of the verses used by Jehovah's Witnesses to teach that Jesus was the first creation of God. Colossians 1.15, speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And Jehovah's Witnesses will turn there, as did the Arians early on, and they'll say, ha see, there it is. Jesus is the first creation. That's not what the text says, is it? It's the firstborn of all creation. But still, there's that glimmer in there that might make us think, well, it does say firstborn of all creation. He's the, maybe he's the first thing that God created. Maybe he's the greatest and the most glorious thing that God created. Maybe that's what it is. But maybe he actually had a start in time. Maybe that's what it means by son. Maybe that's what we mean by begotten. I mean, you look at the, the, book, the book of Matthew, as some of you ladies are and the youth are about to start even tonight, going through Matthew, that whole first chapter of Matthew is what? Begot, 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 begot. And what do they mean? There was a father who had a son. There was a beginning of this person as they were begotten by their parents. So when we talk about Jesus being the only begotten son of God, how does that not mean that he had a beginning, that he was created, that he had a moment in time in which he came to be? Well, that word begotten in the Bible means much more than just conception. When you're reading those genealogies in Matthew and other places, it does mean, in that sense, at least conceived and bore a child, there was a begotten child. But it doesn't just mean that. In fact, when you look at the word begotten, Specifically in John 3.16, it's not about the origin of, <laughs> the origin of birth, the origin of birth, but it means being of the same essence. Being of the same essence or the same nature. You don't have to turn here, but in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, that's where he talks about the anointed being begotten. And we know John 3.16, don't we? God's loved the world. He gave his only begotten son. It's interesting that when you read John 3.16 in the original language, we don't really have that language. That what the language originally says is just two words, mono. We know what mono means, don't we? One, genes, which just means son or only one of a kind son. So really, that's what John 3.16 says. That God so loved the world, he gave his unique, only, one-of-a-kind son. And so we say begotten, we're not talking about something that had a start or a literal birth. We're talking about someone who is of the same essence and of the same type and of the same nature as the Father. So when God begets Jesus, and this gets crazy, we'll talk about it in, his, in the historical section, we're talking about an eternal begottenness. There was never a time when Jesus was not begotten of the Father. He was always and eternally begotten, coming from his Father, sharing in his nature and his essence. This word is not to emphasize the otherness of Jesus from the Father. 
but it's to emphasize his oneness with the Father. You remember when Jesus was arguing with the Pharisees over the Sabbath, being Lord of the Sabbath, and they said, he calls himself the Son of God. Remember this? And what what was their next phrase? And in so doing, he makes himself equal with God. They knew that he wasn't talking about God literally having an offspring or a child. The Pharisees knew that was impossible for God. And so when they heard Jesus calling himself the Son of God, that wasn't in their minds. They knew exactly what he was saying. In saying he is the Son of God, he was claiming oneness or equality with God. And that's why they tried to stone him. Not because he came from God or God created him, but they said this man makes himself equal with God. Jesus' sonship, this isn't in your handout, but you might want to write it to the side. Jesus' sonship is eternal. I think sometimes we think that Jesus became the son when he was conceived. Or he became the son when uh, he was born. Some people falsely say that Jesus became the Son when he was baptized. After all, that's when the Father says, this is my beloved Son, that there was this adoption of Jesus as the Son of God. No, Jesus has eternally, from time and all eternity, always been the only one-of-a-kind, unique Son from the Father. Here's a fun word. His generation is eternal. Not his children or who comes from him, generation upon generation, not that. But where he comes from, it's eternal. He has always been of the Father. So if I could just sum this whole first section up in one big phrase, this is it. It's there in your handout. The Son of God, God the Son, has existed with God and as God from all eternity. He has no beginning and no end. He is truly and fully God, one with the Father in essence and deity. Okay? Now, I know this is a lot of heady language. Uh, Theology is heady and heavy. But I hope as you dig into this more and you think about this more and you go home and ask yourself some questions, you start reading your Bible a little more uh, deeply, This all becomes very beautiful because we're studying here the very nature of God and the very nature of who God is as God the Son, the man Jesus Christ, who is our Savior. Son of God, God the Son has existed with God and as God from all eternity. No beginning, no end, truly and fully God, one with the Father in essence and deity. Not just before Bethlehem, but before creation itself from all eternity past. So now let's move from eternity past and let's move on into creation to biblical history and what we call the Old Testament. Where was Jesus then in the Old Testament? We talked about where he was before creation and what he was before creation. What happens in the Old Testament? Where is Jesus? Well, I want to talk about it three ways. Uh, Number one is activity. There is activity by the Son in the Old Testament. There is action in biblical history that is taken not just by God, but by God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about prophecy. There are messianic prophecies and promises in the Old Testament pointing to the incarnation, pointing to that, that time when God becomes man. It's prophesied, it's foretold in the Old Testament. We're going to talk about type or types, not just messianic promises, but messianic shadows. What I mean by that is this. Messianic prophecy is, to a greater or lesser degree, <laughs> the Messiah is coming. <laughs> okay, so when, it, when Isaiah says, unto us the son is born, the child is given, when he talks about the kingdom being upon his shoulders, when God tells David, I'm going to give you a son who will reign on your throne forever, those are sort of literal, word-for-word prophetic promises about the coming of Messiah. Messiah is coming. 
Okay, the king is coming. Types are not that, but they tell us the same thing. Types is not a prophecy or a person saying Messiah's coming, but it might be in a story or a picture or a symbol or something that happens that points us to Messiah coming. We'll talk about some of those types in a little bit. Uh, maybe a word you have heard from the Old Testament is this word Christophany. Um, a theophany in the Old Testament is an appearance of God. So you might think of the burning bush. You might think of the, the glory and the cloud on Mount Sinai. Uh, you might think of the chariot of fire with Elijah or the whirlwind with Job. Those were all physical um, ways that God made himself visible to man. It wasn't his essence and his being because he tells Moses, no one can see me and live, right? But there's this physical manifestation of God. That's a theophany. A Christophany then in the Old Testament is a theophany, but specifically one in which God the Son is the one making an appearance. Now, one of the commentaries I read was absolutely sure that every time someone saw in the Old Testament or heard what's called the angel of the Lord, you know this, anytime someone saw or heard that in the Old Testament, one commentary I read said, it's always the sun. It was always God the sun. So when, when the burning bush appeared and you, you hear the voice, and it says an angel of the Lord, right? But then he begins to speak in first person as God. I, the Lord, this person said, it's always the sun. Or when the angel appeared to Joshua, the, the host of the captain of heaven's armies, remember? And he says, I'm an angel of the Lord. It's not really an angel. It's a messenger of the Lord who this commentator said was always an appearance of Jesus. I'm not so sure it's always that. It could be that. It might not be that. It's just one of those things we have to leave up to the Lord to, de to determine. It's not important for us to know who was presenting himself. It's just that God was presenting himself. But we do have those instances in the Old Testament where God shows up in this visible, physical, audible way, tangible way sometimes, and we have to wonder, could that have been an appearance of God the Son before the incarnation appearing in these different ways? The answer is, at least for me, maybe, and maybe not. Let's talk about his activity in the Old Testament. What was Jesus the Son doing in the Old Testament? Well, one, we already talked about this. He was involved in creation. He was there, involved in creation. Uh, we already looked at all these verses, John 1, the, the Word created, uh, Colossians 1, through Him all things were made, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, through Him God created the worlds. Jesus, the Word, who would become flesh later, was there at creation and was the agent of creation. How about providence? Jesus, the Son, was involved in the decrees of God even there in the Old Testament. Look with me if you want to. It, it might be hard for you to get there. Uh, Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, uh, verses 31 through 36. And it's, it's an interpretation of this dream of Nebuchadnezzar and this image that he saw that was shattered. And Daniel interprets that dream in Daniel 2, verse 31. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image, this image mighty and exceeding in brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke it to pieces. Then the iron, the clay, and the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that no trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So the question is, who or what is this stone that was not crafted by any human hands? that seems to have no real beginning. Who is this stone that is hurled at this image that represents the kingdoms of earth 
little stone that shatters this image into pieces. And then that stone itself grows and grows and grows to become this great mountain. Well, it's clear who that is and what that's referring to. It's God's kingdom and God's king, the Messiah, there, present in the Old Testament. But what's so remarkable about this is that this king, God's chosen king, is sovereign over all the kingdoms of man. There, even in the Old Testament, the son, God's anointed king, the Christ, who would later become flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, he is there, and he is sovereign over all things. He's provident, he's providentially sovereign over all things. We don't have to turn here. Matthew chapter 23, um, Jesus refers to himself using that language from Daniel. He talks about himself being the son of man, and you will see the son of man coming on the clouds of glory. That's Jesus claiming to be the king and the judge of all the earth. The one whom Daniel saw, Jesus says, that's me. Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, we see that it's not other than Jesus. Let's go over there and read that. Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. Revelation eleven fifteen. The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So is there, is there any real confusion about what that stone was in Daniel 2? If all the kingdoms of this world have been given to God and his anointed king, Jesus, that stone is none other than the person, God the Son, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, provident over all history. How about the doctrine of revelation? Jesus, the Christ, the Son, was involved in revelation. Uh, not the book revelation, but the giving of revelation in scripture. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, you know that one, right? All scripture is breathed out by God, proper for reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. All scripture is given by God. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. God created the world, right? In verse 4, how does that creation begin? And God, what? Genesis 1, 4. You know this. Come on now. And God, okay. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. The Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep. Okay, now we get to verse 4. And God said, all right, y'all making me nervous. And God said, what, what does it mean when someone says something? They're using words, right? They're speaking, right? So John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, what happens? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God, and the word was God, right? Now, I'm not saying Jesus is just words, but it is interesting that when John chooses this picture to, to describe Jesus, he describes him as the word of God that became flesh. And there in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, what does God do immediately from the start except he speaks creation into being? First uh, Peter chapter 1, verse, verse 11. You don't have to turn there. Uh, but it's interesting that Peter says in First Peter chapter 1, 11, that the prophets, the prophets when they were writing, the prophets when they were speaking, Peter says they were trying to discern what the Spirit of Christ was telling them. Isn't that interesting? Not just the Spirit of God. We understand that. Not just the Holy Spirit, we understand that, but he calls it what? The Spirit of Christ. That the prophets of the Old Testament were being led along by the Holy Spirit who was none other than the Spirit of Christ. How about the issue of judgment? That Jesus, the Son, will be the one who judges the world. Jesus will be the one who judges the world. And that was prophesied from the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. We see the Ancient of Days seated on a throne. And then Daniel says, I, I saw what? 
one like the Son of Man coming on the clouds. And the Ancient of Days gives this Son of Man all dominion and all authority and all judgment over the kingdoms of, kingdoms of earth. That's exactly what Jesus said at his trial, again, when he said, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. It wasn't just a prophecy of the second coming when he comes on the clouds. That's real. But he was hearkening back to Daniel 7 and the Son of Man coming on the clouds to receive the authority from the Ancient of Days to judge the earth. So Jesus, from the very beginning, the Son of God, God the Son, has been the one who is involved in creation, who is involved in revelation, who is involved in the providence over human history, and who will at last judge all things. He is the agent by which God will do those things. Let's talk very quickly about prophecy. Now, we're not going to go over every single Old Testament prophecy about Jesus. Okay, That's for you to do. We're talking about these general categories of where we see Jesus in the Old Testament. Number one, the prophets spoke about Jesus. The prophets of the Old Testament, as they were speaking at times, it was messianic in nature, were speaking about the coming of Jesus Christ, the coming of God in human flesh. All the scriptures pointed to Jesus. You remember when Jesus met the two disciples on the road to Emmaus? And he's talking to them about himself. What, what does it specifically say he did? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained the things concerning who? Himself. Jesus was preached from the very beginning. Moses, through the rest of the prophets, Jesus tells those early disciples, that was all about me. So I want you to write down some scripture references that you can look up later. Genesis 12, verse 3. Jesus, uh, God makes that promise to Abraham to make him a blessing to all nations. Remember that. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 13. 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 13. What did God say there? He promises David that one of his sons will reign on his throne forever. All of Psalm 22. Psalm 22. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. I thirst. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They cast lots for my clothes. I mean, that's a picture of the crucifixion right there in Psalm 22. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 virgin will conceive and bear a son. Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 12. Isaiah 53, 1 through 12. What's that? The song of the suffering servant. He was pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. The Lord put him forth. The Lord crushed him to make many righteous. That's Jesus. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But from you, Micah 5, 2, but from you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, the exact city, shall come forth my ruler, who will rule over all the world. Zechariah 9, verse 9, Zechariah 9, verse 9, behold, your king comes to you. Remember this? Humble and riding on a donkey. Zechariah 9.9. And we could go on and on and on and on. You can go look these up. 700-something prophecies directly made about the coming of Christ and directly fulfilled by the person, Jesus of Nazareth. The Old Testament also speaks about the Messiah in terms of type. Types. Number one, and there's so many, we're just going to mention four, the seed of of the woman. The seed of the woman. He tells the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, on your belly you shall go, and I will put enmity between your seed and the woman's seed. You know enough science to know that that's not, ref that's not normal, right? The seed is not the woman's, but here in this prophecy, the seed of the serpent will be at war with the seed of a woman. And what does it say? 
you will bruise his heel, he will bruise your head. Paul picks up on that in Romans chapter 16, verse 20. We'll get there uh, by the end of the year. Romans 16, verse 20, when he says what? And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That you believers, by your union with Christ, have part in that victory that God promised in Genesis chapter 3. That even though the serpent deceived, and even though the serpent brought the fall, God was going to send the seed of a woman to crush the head of the serpent, even as his own heel was bruised. And that through him, God was going to crush the head of the serpent. Uh, Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, at the end of all things, God takes the serpent, calls him that, that great deceiver, and throws him down to the earth. So really, from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, it's the tale of the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. This type unfolding all around us. Just go through your Old Testament stories and see how many times someone's head is cut off. Goliath, go through the book of Judges. Remember uh, uh, Deborah, with that, or is it, uh, it was one of the women in the book of Judges that, that drove the tent peg through the guy's head. Remember that? How many times that God used that picture? You think that's an accident? No, it's telling that story. Jesus is the anointed king. All throughout the Old Testament, we see the anointing of kings. And when they anoint the kings, there's not this, this announcement that one day God will send his Messiah, and, but there's that understanding that one day God is going to send one king, his king, who will reign forever and who will sit on David's throne without end. I wish I had time to explore this. We might at the beginning of next week, but Jesus is our mediator, and that is revealed in the Old Testament. And I love this. I love these references in the book of Job. As Job laments his suffering, and he's crying out to God for deliverance, several times, as you can see here, the references are there. You can look at them up later. Several times, Job says, Oh, that I had a mediator. If I just had someone to go between me and God, if I just had someone who could lay his hand on God and lay his hand on me, if I just had a go-between that could represent both parties. And all of that, of course, is pointing us to the God-man, Paul. There's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. And how, Job, is he able to be the mediator between God and man? Because he is both fully God and fully man. All of that there, even in the Old Testament. The earliest book in the Old Testament, the book of Job. Lastly tonight, Jesus is our prophet, our priest, and our king. Three significant offices introduced in the Old Testament, central to the life of Israel. And interestingly enough, one could not be the other. You might be able to be a prophet-like figure and a king like David who prophesied, but he wasn't in the technical school of prophets. But you certainly couldn't be a prophet and a king. That's two different tribes altogether. That's the tribe of Levi, the tribe of Judah. You couldn't do both of those. It was against God's law. Yet Jesus comes and he assumes the role of our prophet. In other words, he speaks to men on behalf of God. He is our priest, our mediator. He represents men to God. And of course, he is our king who appears in Revelation as the king of kings and lord of lords. Next week, we will talk about the incarnation. So the infleshing of God. This week, we've talked about the pre-incarnation. And tonight, I wanted to tell you that Jesus as the Son is eternal as God. He's one with the Father in deity. He's eternally existent, eternally begotten. He is the creator God, the promised Messiah, and the hope of all nations. So I don't know if anything you thought has been exploded tonight but um, every time I study the Bible I tell Anna this Anna you know who's dealing with faith and baptism and all these things and and uh, she she gets confused sometimes and says I don't know if I'm ready to be baptized because I don't understand everything I tell her honey I'm I I feel old I know y'all don't think I'm old I'm 38 years old I'm a pastor I went to Bible college went to seminary I try to study the Bible and read the Bible and teach the Bible and I don't understand everything And every day I'm learning and I'm growing. I'm having to correct myself in light of God's truth. 
Well, it still happens, you, you people that are older than me, maybe much older than me, if you're in your Bibles and you're listening and you're studying and you're plugging in, you're experiencing the same thing, aren't you? Every day you're growing and learning and correcting and adjusting in light of what God has taught us in his word. And so as we go through this together, don't be discouraged. If you don't know terms and stuff, we're going to talk about it. You can ask questions about it, and we're going to learn, and we're going to grow together in our faith and the doctrine of Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this day. Thank you for every day that you give us, and uh, help us as we go through this study to fall more and deeply in love with our Lord Jesus Christ, who was there with you from before creation, who shared glory and love with you and the Holy Spirit from before the dawn of time. And Lord, we, we can't even begin to understand that in our finite human existence. But I ask that as, as, we, as we study these things, and as we dig deeper into these things, you would bless us with the measure of your Holy Spirit to understand the best we can so that we can know Jesus more, we might love Jesus more, we might, we might worship him more, we might share him more with those around us. We ask all this in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.